Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Aren't you glad you can lean on His everlasting arms? Praise God, praise God. Ladies' prayer tomorrow, 6.30 in the prayer room. Brothers, we meet Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock. Amen. So be mindful of that. Join us if you can. We're going to Revelation chapter 18 tonight. Praise the Lord. We have now uh, just uh, just stepped into uh, this chapter, and uh, we pray we'll be able to cover it, cover it all tonight as we head towards closing out this series here in just a few weeks. And so I uh, trust you was able to uh, pick up a study guide if you'd like one, take a few notes, follow along. And uh, <clears throat> Revelation chapter 18, last week we saw how Revelation 17 speaks of a religious Babylon, a religious system. Uh, now this week, chapter 18, uh, focuses on a commercial uh, Babylon, a financial system. So uh, let's, uh, let's just read. I'm not going to read them all here at the first. Let's read the first eight verses as you stand together, and then we'll come back and uh, just take them as we uh, make a few points throughout the study tonight. All right, so Revelation chapter 18, it says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils. And the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double under her double according to her works in the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith to her heart, I will sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly buried with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. Heavenly Father, thank you. Once again, for uh, the opportunity we've had to study this, uh, this enlightening, inspiring, informative book, thank you, Lord, tonight as we've come to this 18th chapter, I pray that you would guide us, enlighten our eyes, may we have knowledge in our hearts of how to live better and closer to you as a result of the study of this chapter. 
In Christ's name we pray all God's children say amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. All right, notice on your study guide, the revived last days Roman Empire includes a one world religion. We talked about that last week. And a one world economy. Scripture shows us that a person's religion or faith begins as a matter of the heart. Christ said that where our treasure is, there will our what? Heart be also. This is why I believe Satan works so hard to control commerce because if he does so, he can capture a lot of hearts. Now, let's remember tonight as we begin to look at this chapter. Notice on your study guide, Babylon was never just a city. It was a system. And that's, we're going to look at both tonight. Because it's, it's really a trap that the devil uses to, to deceive and to manipulate. Because Satan deceives a world through religion, but he also deceives a world through riches. Everybody say religion and riches. Those are the two uh, deceptive uh, areas Satan leverages. And so Babylon is about both of those, religion and riches. So here in chapter 18, we're told it's Babylon's wealth that entices the world to worship at the altar of the Antichrist. All the nations come to Babylon to drink of her spiritual Kool-Aid and of her business so that they can also become rich. Now, any student of human nature, any student of world history, knows that it is no surprise that the nations of this world will sell out principle for profit. Sadly, how many know that happens every day in the business sector? It goes to prove that if you give people more, what shall I say, entitlements, lower interest rates, new jobs, peace and prosperity, if you can give people those things, they'll overlook an evil spiritual agenda. Right? As long as their pocketbooks and bank accounts and 401ks are growing, who cares, in a sense, they say, about the spiritual temperature? The Antichrist will usher in this age of prosperity and and the nations will sell their soul for a piece of his pie, so to speak. Does that make sense? Now, throughout Scripture, Babylon represents man's rebellion against God. I think that's on your study guide. And it's a city that really, when you study its, its uh, history, it's marked by humanism, atheism, 
hedonism, which is pleasure-seeking. It is literally a city totally void of Christ. And here in uh, chapter 18, God will finally destroy Babylon once and for all, and John discovers how he's going to do it. But before we get into those details, I want us to go back and get a little background information because I think that will prove helpful. So if we go back to immediately after the global flood, according to Scripture, Noah and his family were instructed to uh, exit the ark um, and to repopulate the earth. They were enjoying the worship of God and obedience with God again. Uh, that is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 9. However, Noah had a great-grandson whose name was Nimrod. Everybody say Nimrod. Yeah. Nimrod, Noah's great-grandson, rebelled, and instead of getting people together to worship the true God, he assembled them together to defy and deny God. He's the one that got them together to build the first city after the flood. Become a city of rebellion against God called Babel. And so Noah's great-grandson Nimrod became Babel's first Caesar. And he built the Tower of Babel dedicated to, they dedicated that temple to the stars, to the sun, the zodiac, which history shows originated in Babylon. Zodiac has been discovered in the remains of ancient copycat towers. People's come along and tried to rebuild and build other copycat towers of Babel. So it traces its roots to Babylon with uh, these other copycat towers, they said, you can always see in the paintings, the planets just showing their worship of the heavens because they had rejected the creator. They had begun worshiping the creation. And so Genesis 11 reveals how God judged humans again um, after the flood. And here he judged them by confusing their languages. Remember that? Uh, and separating them into many different dialects, which, of course, uh, caused the confusion. And so they, they scattered, and obviously they grouped together uh, by dialect and then went to different areas of the globe. But even though they left the immediate tower of Babel, Babylon was not completely abandoned. It actually retained uh, many folks. It grew in size and significance. It would grow century after century, leader after leader, until the king named Nebuchadnezzar came and he built Babylon to its greatest state ever. 500 years before the birth of Christ, according to historians, the city of Babylon was uh, an exact square city of 15 miles on each side. 
Historians have described all 60 miles of it as surrounded by brick walls 87 feet thick, 100 feet high, 250 towers reaching up to the sky, uh, posted around its walls simply to intimidate any enemy army. The uh, What made it flourish was the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River ran through the city of Babylon. The banks of the river were beautifully walled with steps leading down to the water's edge. Um, the hanging gardens were created there by Nebuchadnezzar to keep one of his wives from getting too homesick. Terraced patios with exotic plants tended by laborers. They said laborers keeping the gardens of Babylon work 24-7. These gardens became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it may well have been an attempt by Satan, in a sense, I, I think, to mimic the Garden of Eden. Babylon was laid out with, with 25 main avenues which traveled through the city in straight lines. And at the end of each avenue were breathtaking brass-covered gates which glistened in the sun. And one of those gates, for just example, one of them was the Ishtar Gate. That's the most popular one that if you Google Babylon, you're going to see that gate. It's the blue gate with the gold dragons on it and such. It was named in honor of Ishtar, who was Babylon's chief goddess, who they claimed was the queen of heaven, uh, the virgin mother who bore a son that they worshipped. And that gate has actually been excavated and is on display in, in uh, a museum in Berlin. And you can see pictures of it, like I said. It's the stunning blue stone dragons painted in gold. And through, through that gate or one of these gates... Scripture reveals that a young teenager entered this capital city of Babylon as a captive. Anybody remember his name? Daniel. Thankfully, we know from Scripture that Daniel and his three friends were not intimidated by this empire city. Dedicated to the worship of false gods and the zodiac and Mother Earth, Daniel later prophesied of Babylon's uh, fall to the Medes and the Persians back in, I think it's Daniel chapter 6. And that's exactly what happened later in Daniel chapter 5. Excuse me. He prophesied. They don't work that way. Let me get my timeline right. He prophesied that it would fall to the Medes and the Persians in chapter 2. And it did in chapter 5. That's better. So after Darius defeated Babylon, it still limped along, losing much, though, of its grand reputation. But then there came a man in history by the name of Alexander the Great. He was the next world conqueror. He came, and upon his arrival in Babylon, he, he was intrigued, so he decided to make it his capital city. He planned to rebuild Nebuchadnezzar's centuries-old palace in its original glory, but he died before he was able to finish. After Alexander the Great came Napoleon. He made plans to rebuild Babylon as he raced to conquer the Western world as well. 
I've read that in the French Department of War in Paris today, there are records of surveys and maps of Babylon that were made at Napoleon's command. He had plans for Babylon. Napoleon had intended to rebuild that city, and he, called, he was going to call it New Babylon, making it his capital uh, and the governmental commercial city, uh, center of the Western world. But once again, he too failed. And after uh, Napoleon, Babylon slipped off the radar of world attention for a while. But there came another reason to desire control over Babylon in, in our lifetimes. You're in my lifetime. And the desire to control Babylon in the surrounding area the reason to want to control it is one word, oil. Iraq sits on one of the world's largest known crude oil reserves. Some oil experts believe that Iraq's potential could, could rival Saudi Arabia and become the world-leading producer. One author wrote, and I quote, Stabilizing Iraq and rebuilding the city of Babylon into a major economic center for the Middle East was or has Western oil companies drooling. So they, they see the potential from a commercial standpoint. But no sooner did they recognize that years ago that another problem arose namely in the form of a tyrant who had visions of rebuilding Babylon and owning the world, really. He even declared himself the new Nebuchadnezzar, and that was Saddam Hussein. He would, he would spend millions of dollars rebuilding the palace of Nebuchadnezzar on what's believed to be the same plot of ground where the original palace of Nebuchadnezzar once stood. Uh, Saddam's palace still stands today. They opened that area up for tours in uh, 2009. Um, Saddam also rebuilt that gate, uh, Ishtar, complete with the blue stone, golden animals. And, and the millions of bricks used to rebuild that ancient city that uh, Saddam was building all had his personal insignia stamped onto each brick. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar had done that 2,500 years earlier. He offered, uh, Saddam also ordered uh, a million and a half to a designer who could capture the essence and beauty of Nebuchadnezzar's hanging gardens. He wanted to duplicate them. Saddam even went as far as to mint coins, uh, emphasized, uh, that emphasized the connection between himself and ancient Babylon. He claimed to have been given a vision to restore the once great empire, and he was planning to become the next Nebuchadnezzar. Now, uh, prophecy teacher Mark Hitchcock, I have heard him on the Moody Station, and I got a book or two of his, uh, in his book called The Second Coming Babylon, 
He provided the religious motivation behind Saddam that never really made it to news outlets like ABC, NBC, or even Fox News. Saddam not only wanted to destroy the Jews, but he wanted to destroy Iran as well because Saddam hated Iranians just as much as he hated the Jews. Why? Because Iranians are the descendants of the Persians who had originally conquered Babylon and Saddam's forefathers. So Saddam was taking on a personal quest to renew the honor of his forefathers by conquering Persia, which is now Iran, and the Jews. In fact, before his fall from power, Saddam had republished a pamphlet that was authored by his uncle, who had been uh, governor of Baghdad, and wrote this pamphlet called, I quote, Three Whom God Should Have Never Created, Persians, Jews, and Flies. Saddam wanted to rid the world of Iranians and Jews. But he had several hurdles in his way. One of them was his need for money. His quest to rebuild Babylon created a need for more and more millions. And in fact, we, know, uh, we now know that it was his need for money that's why he invaded Kuwait. He wanted to dominate at least 10% of the world's oil reserves to fund the rebuilding of Babylon. But there was more to it than that. One author revealed that Saddam attempted to regain control over Kuwait uh, because it was part of the original kingdom of Babylon, geographically. So he considered it his property. But he failed to capture it. He failed in his attempt to control the oil reserves, and it failed his people too. And so if, if you recall that raw video that was smuggled out of Iraq where Saddam was surrounded by chaos and cursing when his own people caught up with him, put that noose around his neck, and hung him because he was just one more applicant for world ruler. He was only one more hopeful king of Babylon. Satan, right now, is waiting and watching for another Nimrod, I believe. That's what the book of Revelation teaches. Another individual who will desire and attempt to rebuild Babylon. Why would Satan, the enemy of God and God's people, even believe it's possible to re rebuild Babylon? Because how many know the devil knows the Scriptures? He's read the Scriptures. He's read of Babylon's return to worldwide prominence and significance and power in the pages of the prophets, especially here in the book of Revelation. And Satan has no doubt studied the Apostle John's own account of the Antichrist rule and reign from the ancient resurrected ruins of the city of Nimrod, Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> Since Genesis 11, when Nimrod was overthrown and the people were scattered, Satan has longed for, worked toward manipulating the hearts of un the unbelieving world powers to ultimately return mankind to Babylon. 
The empire that will one day rise from the rubble will rule over a one-world religion, one-world government that will once again build a tower, so to speak, against the Creator God. Now, this coming un... This coming global order, global religion, global economic base, global political unity will bring about the finale of rebellion and defiance against God. And what I find fascinating is that it will all center in and around the place where it all first started, right back at Babylon. It fits the biblical record of history and prophecy perfectly. So unlike many, Satan Satan believes the Bible, evidently believes the Bible, defiance to God began with planet Earth's first city, Babylon. That's the first city after the flood. And and you probably even studied it in your, your history books. Your teacher called it the cradle of, of civilization, that, that area there, the cradle of civilization. Earth's final defiance against God will once again emanate from Babylon and, in, and really into the battle of Armageddon. Millions will die in defiance to God so that the cradle of civilization will become the graveyard of civilization. Right? You've heard the phrase, from the cradle to the grave. Well, according to biblical prophecy, the cradle of civilization will become the graveyard of civilization as man loses his final duel against God. And God brings final judgment upon Babylon. The Apostle John provides these details. Now, that's a little bit of the backstory. Hopefully I didn't bore you with that. So, so that brings us up now to... This chapter where point number one, I believe it is Roman number one on your handout, we've called it the fall of Babylon is predicted. And that's verses one through eight. Verses one through three basically repeat the verdict we've already studied in chapter 17. Okay, The angel here describes Babylon as a desolate city that is now a haunted region for demons, vultures, kind of like a scene out of a horror movie. Okay? Babylon, once the city of dreams, has become the city of nightmares. Now, in teaching on this subject, there's always those that will ask, well, is this really going to be the literal Babylon? Could it be... We're talking symbols here. Maybe it's a symbolic code. What if... What if commercial Babylon is New York? What if it's Paris, Berlin, Rome? I guess it could. So I'm not going to disagree. I'm not going to debate. But I like to go back to Scripture. And if we answer that question by starting in the Old Testament we discover that whenever the word Babylon appears, every time it shows up in Scripture, it refers to literal Babylon. That city that is now modern-day Iraq. 
whenever the book of Revelation uses the name of a city, if the author wanted us to consider it as something other than the literal city, it adds something to the text to make that clear. For instance, in chapter 11, that's going back several weeks when we came through chapter 11, John referred to Jerusalem as becoming the Sodom and Egypt. But he prefixes that by writing, quote, the great city which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt. So it's important to note that chapter 17 talks about mystery Babylon as the mother of all the religious corruption. However, when we come in chapter 18, the word mystery is dropped and the word city is used. And John refers to numerous cities throughout the book of Revelation, as we have seen. And unless he adds something to let us know that he's using the name of that city figuratively, I think, I think I'm going to understand it as literally. Like I said, there's nothing to fall out of over, but because, for example, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Patmos, Armageddon, Babylon. They're all literal places, regions or cities in the Middle East. Furthermore, the city of Babylon on the Euphrates fits the criteria for this city described in Revelation 17 and 18. So I, I, I believe Babylon is a prime prospect for rebuilding. Not only is it the beautiful and... Uh, lush uh, Tigris and Euphrates plain, not only is it located there, but computer studies have shown that Babylon is, is very near the geographical center of all of the earth's land masses. So it's within passable distance to the Persian Gulf. Uh, it's at the crossroads of three great continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And there there is not a more ideal location anywhere for a world trade center, a world communication center, a world banking center, world educational center, just the world capital. Is it any stretch of the imagination that the future capital of the United Nations Kingdom, the Ten Nation Federation established at the beginning of the tribulation period, should be established in Babylon? I think it's a very good possibility. So the announcement here in verse 2 is made by the angel. The Babylon is now fallen in judgment as the final bowl of judgment is poured out. Now, John then hears another voice from heaven, and we read what this second voice said in verses 4 and 5, where this voice said that the judgment being poured out on Babylon is justified. Everybody say justified. Because she has refused justification by God through Christ. And I want us to notice a word that appears multiple times in this chapter. Babylon's judgment will be delivered, verse 7, to the degree that, quote, she glorified herself and lived deliciously. Now, the only place in the entire New Testament that this word deliciously, which means sensuously, appears, is in this chapter. The word comes from a word uh, 
which literally refers to uninhibited immoral promiscuity. And I'm trying to be nice, okay? Coupled, so it, it means this uninhibited impurity coupled with, with excessive luxury. That's what in the Greek deliciously means. Babylon will create her own new class of perverted, unhinged, sexual deviance, along with so much money to burn that they can support luxurious lifestyles beyond anyone's imagination. And in other words, as bad as Rome became, how I many know oh, Rome was pretty bad? And as immoral as Corinth was, they were never quite as bad. They were never accused of this word that Babylon is accused of. Because this is an even greater perverted depth of sensuality. Hefner's Playboy Mansion would pale in comparison to Babylon's den of immorality. Hello. The entire city will be a literal playground for the rich and famous, and there will be no boundaries to their behavior. Their pride and their arrogance will have no boundaries as well. I mean, just look at the guy who built it to its heyday, Nebuchadnezzar. He was so full of himself, he had to have his name stamped on every brick. Wow. What would you think of Pastor Jones if, if we built a new church and every brick had to have Matt Jones stamped on it? You say, it's time to get rid of him. The, arrogant, the level of arrogancy, right? That makes sense? Now, notice something that might be easy to miss in the latter part of verse 7. <clears throat> it says, For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. That is actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 47 where Babylon is challenged for believing she is a queen that is going to rule forever. The phrase, I am not a widow, refers to the fact that all the, word, all the world's kings are her partners. And the phrase, I will never mourn, the verb for mourn, is the kind of mourning that comes from suffering and torment. In other words, Babylon says, in effect, that she's never going to experience the judgment of God. How many know when you start thinking that, you better watch out? Point number two. Okay, so number one was the fall of Babylon is predicted. The fall of Babylon is lamented. It's point number two. And that takes us from verses 9 through 20. Who would ever believe that mighty Babylon would ever suffer anything? Who would imagine that the greatest empire to ever grace the surface of the globe was in danger of utter collapse. 
That's what they're going to think after they've built this. I mean, if mighty Babylon says, I'll never be defeated again, I mean, who would ever deny it? And yet judgment falls, and the Bible says the world is going to watch Babylon burn to the ground one final time. And I want you to notice, three different categories of people are revealed as they weep in horror over the loss of economy, power, wealth, position, and occupation. The first category are the monarchs of the earth. When they see Babylon burn, they're going to lament the fall of Babylon as, as in verses 9 and 10. Because as Babylon goes, so goes their power. They've lost their power. So the monarchs are going to weep as it burns. Second category are the merchants of the earth. Verse 11 says, weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. All the goods. In other words, they've lost their wealth. The third category are the mariners. Look down at verse 17. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company and ships, the sailors, as many as trade by sea, stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? In other words, Babylon has been the commercial center of the world until God destroys it here in Revelation 18. She, she was the clearinghouse with the, with the giant warehouses and the markets and the shipping centers, and, and now it's all going up in smoke. Babylon had traded in every product imaginable, including slave trade. It's mentioned in verse 13, where they bartered for slaves, even human lives. What's that showing us? It's showing us that Babylon's become a place where life is cheap. I mean, no, we're not too far behind in our generation. Here, life only mattered insofar as it advanced the kingdom of Babylon. That's the way Babylon has always operated. Life is cheap, and now in a moment of time... God's judgment, it is burst into flames. Monarchs, merchants, mariners, representing every class, occupation on the planet, are standing in their executive suites halfway, half across the world, watching via satellite television their world go up in smoke. Think about it. And Scripture says they're going to begin to weep and mourn. How I many know it's not often that you see grown men weeping and wailing in public? But you'll see that. Well, hopefully we, won't, we don't plan to be here when that happens. But that's what this world is going to experience. But I also want you to see, and you might circle... 
how it how it repeats that Babylon's judgment is going to come swiftly and it's going to be swiftly. The phrase one hour that appears in verses 10, uh, 17, and 19 symbolize how quick Babylon's economy tanks. Like today, every single week, our culture gets to me, now this is just my, I, I just see it getting more materialistic. Is that not true? More preoccupied with the economy. We're raising a, a generation where all the hopes and dreams are built, in a sense, on Babylonian economy. And on that economy being stronger than God. But how many know it never will be stronger than God? John says, in one hour, she's laying waste. No city like the great city, and yet it goes down in one hour. I don't know for sure if it's literally 60 minutes, but it is implying it's going to be sudden and quick with immediate judgment all the millions, all the connections, all the power, all the pomp, all the extravagance, all that seemed to matter, lost. Listen, how many has realized that if money is God and God is gone, what is left except godless grief? Right? And what does it profit a man? What's this, what did Jesus say? If he gained the whole world, <coughs> but lose his own soul. See, <coughs> so, so this destruction of Babylon that we see in chapter 18, it's an event like, if you could imagine Pearl Harbor, the stock market crash, the Great Depression, the bubonic plague, and the Holocaust all rolled up in one hour. It's pretty intense. All right, so the fall of Babylon is predicted. That was in verses 1 through 8. The fall of Babylon is lamented in verses 9 through 20. Finally, uh, point number three, the fall of Babylon is completed. And that's verses 21 through 24. Verse 21, look here. It says, a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall the great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. Now, why does this angel take up a stone like a millstone? Why is that mentioned? It's because a millstone was an ancient symbol of commerce and business. Yet, here in the text, the millstone is thrown into the sea. Why? How many know there's going to be a point where God gets sick and tired of mankind's greed? 
Now, if capitalism means an investment of funds to grow businesses, create jobs, provide goods and services for the betterment of society, I believe God is for that. But if it means rich people exploiting workers, patting their own pockets off the backs of the poor, God is against it. And one day, he'll throw all of our systems of greed into the sea like a millstone. And the next few verses reveal how uh, complete this, this, this destruction, this judgment, this loss really is. Verse 22 mentions music will cease. All music is silenced. No more parties. No more uh, revelry. No more, no more singing. Next, work ceases. Careers end. John writes in, in the last part of verse 22, No craftsman, no craft will be found any longer among you. Verse 22c, the last part of verse 22, domestic life ceases. It says the sound of a mill, millstone, will not be heard any longer in you. That's because every ancient home ground its own grain with a handheld millstone. No one, so what it's saying is no one's preparing food because no one's home. The judgment, the devastation has been so complete. Notice also in verse 23 that the lamps are gone out. Babylon is dark. It's uninhibited. Excuse me, uninhabited. Except for demons <laughs> bewailing their defeat and vultures swooping in to feed on the dead carcasses. Next, marriages will cease. John writes this as if to reinforce there is no hope of ever rebuilding Babylon. Verse 23 says, The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard anymore in you. So you got music, work, marriage, domestic life, commerce, careers, everything imaginable. Like a candle is snuffed out by the judgment of God. The candle... had gone out for Babylon. And the cradle of human civilization becomes the grave of civilization as Babylon orchestrates a global army to march upon God himself at the Battle of Armageddon. With the return of Christ and one word of his power, and I'm getting ahead of myself because that's really in the next chapter. But let me just share. One word of Christ's power. Babylon is reduced to rubble. The defiance of Babylon against God in, in Genesis ends now in Revelation with just one final gasp of defiance. Folks, are we headed there today? I dare say we are. You say, well, surely there's no interest in rebuilding Babylon right now. In the recent past, I've read that the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization has pumped millions of dollars into Babylon and several other historic sites in Iraq. 
Some report that with the help of private donors, the UN is, is hoping to turn Babylon into a thriving center of tourism and commerce. In fact, I read our own government has in the past given nearly a million dollars of tax money just to rebuild Babylon. Prophecy writer, you may know of him, Joel Rosenberg. He wrote a bestseller called Epicenter and explains why the ultimate showdown will be between Jerusalem and Babylon. And he writes of one incident that occurred after Saddam Hussein's fall from power. Because of in Saddam's newly constructed palace, well, it was newly constructed in the 80s, same site, like I said, of, of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, it's believed. If you can imagine it, the palace is covered throughout in multi-million dollar layers of, of marble, gold. But after his fall from power, I'm talking about Saddam's, he has in that palace a throne room. And according to Joe Rosenberg, that same throne room in a matter of weeks after Saddam's fall from power, an evangelical church service was held in that throne room. Singing and preaching took place to glorify God from an a element of believers that had been obviously suppressed under the regime of Saddam, but now liberated. And they march right into his palace and have a church service. That, my friend, is just a small glimpse into the ultimate future. There's a final battle between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. A final duel between the Antichrist, the king of Babylon, and Jesus Christ. And how many know the king of Jerusalem is going to win? And the battle will be over. Babylon will fall. Now, the kingdoms of this world, the riches, the prosperity. Listen to this as I close. The words of Christ in Luke chapter 12, and I, I, I think this is a fitting conclusion. Let me read it to you in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And he, that's Christ, spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all of my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? Verse 21, And so he that layeth up treasure for himself, or so is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. Somebody say, what a fool. A world of fools will perish. That's what Revelation 18 teaches us. 
but those who are rich in their hearts toward God. Take this whole world, but give me Jesus. I said, take this whole world. Just give me Jesus. He's all I need. He's all you need. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, we're stricken by this scene that you have laid out for us in this text. We understand where our world history is actually moving. We understand where our world is headed. And God, while there is time, God, while there is still opportunity, make us faithful to live and proclaim your saving gospel and grace. God, help us to reach out to all those who perish. Help us not to be caught up in the materialistic preoccupations of this culture. I pray for anyone under the sound of this Bible study tonight who is building bigger barns and gathering treasure to himself or herself. God, if they are not rich toward you, help them realize that in a sudden hour, just like Babylon, it can all be gone. Lord, help us to be rich toward you. Help us to lay up our treasure in heaven. Thank you for the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm so glad I know him. In Jesus' name, all God's church say amen. amen. Sing that chorus with me. Take this whole world. Give me Jesus. Take this whole world. Give me Jesus. Take this. Take this whole world. You can take this whole world. Hallelujah. I won't turn back. Don't turn back to Babylon. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided. God bless you. These altars are open if you want to close in a time of prayer.